First, a show of hands. Anyone here who was not here yesterday? One, two, three, four, five. Okay. Okay, I'll give you a brief recap <coughs> of the main points from yesterday. We're talking about the ten perfections, <coughs> which are a list of dharmas that come late in the canon. They're not part of their early suttas. Um, they were derived from the Jataka tales. The question arose, what is the path of a Buddha? And so they decided one of the ways you could find out the path of the Buddha is go back and look at the various tales that talked about his previous lifetimes and what kind of qualities were developed in those tales. Um, different schools came up with different lists. The Theravada list has ten. Um, generosity, virtue, renunciation, discernment, persistence, endurance, truth, determination, goodwill, equanimity. And this list has in some ways kind of taken over Buddhism in Southeast Asia. If you talk to people about what are they practicing, they'll say they're practicing the perfections. Very few people will actually say that they're on the Eightfold Path. But the perfections are something everybody feels that they can, they can develop. And they are qualities that you can develop in daily life. In fact, it's a good list to take as a, as a guide to how can you make your daily life a part of the practice or how can you actually bring your daily life in and do the practice so you are developing qualities that will lead to awakening. We're, going to, we're discussing them under the headings of dis, uh, determination. Determination, of course, is one of the perfections. And the Buddha talks about four qualities that you develop in making a determination. One is discernment as to what is a good goal, how you best attain it. The second one is truth, and once you realize what needs to be done, you really stick with it. The third is generosity, the things that you have to give up in order to reach that goal you're willing to give up. And then finally, fourth is calm, and keeping your mind calm as you do work on this, because it is going to be a long-term goal. You have to pace yourself the same way that you would pace yourself as a marathon runner. You can't just kind of dash straight to awakening. You have to realize, okay, this is going to take time, and I can't get myself, let myself get worked up about the things I'm giving up or the things or difficult things I'm having to do. Um, bringing all the perfections under these headings makes several points. One is that each Perfection contains the others in kind of a, as you work in the implications of each one, it, it connects with all the others. But particularly with the determination. Determination, of course, is making up your mind. You really want to attain something. And all of the perfections really are that kind of thing. You have to determine that this is really what you want to do. Awaken is not something that's just going to happen naturally. It's something that you actually have to develop the qualities within yourself in order for it to happen. Also, talking under these headings makes the point that it all really does begin with discernment. Because discernment has to give guidance to how you're going to develop the rest of the perfections. Some of the main principles of discernment are, one, you're actually honoring your desire for true happiness. That's how what tr true discernment begins. And the Buddha says it begins with the question, what when I do what will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? And the discernment there lies in one, seeing that help, happiness or lack of happiness depends on your actions. And then that long-term is better than short-term. Uh, very basic, but something that's very easily forgotten. Um, this is the context both for what's called mundane right view, which is belief in the principle of karma and the principle of rebirth, and then transcendent right view, which has to do with the Four Noble Truths. Because in each case, the question is, if there's going to be happiness or, or lack of suffering, it has to come from your actions. Um, and another one of the principles of discernment is that your mind is really has primacy in determining your experience. Um, this is something we 
sometimes miss here in the West. We think the mind is a kind of a more receptive organ and, and sensory input comes in, then you react. But from the Buddhist point of view, we're actually out there looking for things to begin with. And we're already having intentions before we engage in our senses. And get engaging in our senses is part of our intentional involvement and creation of a lot of things that we experience. Um, another one of the principles of discernment is that the mind as consciousness as a process does not need to depend on the body, which is why it can go on to another lifetime. So that the results of your acts will lead to results not only now in this lifetime, but also in future lifetimes. But there are limitations. There is a principle of cause and effect that you can't change. You can learn how to manipulate things within that principle of cause and effect, which is basically that your experience is composed of the results of past actions, your current actions, your current intentions, and the results of your current intentions. All those three things coming together, that's your current experience. So there are certain influences coming in from the past that you can't change. You make a decision back in the past, and you can't go back and undo it. But you can say what the results of that past session coming in. You can adjust the way that you process that and actualize those potentials in the present moment. So it gives you some power, but also gives you power within the fact that you realize you have to be heedful and careful about how you choose your actions. You can't say, I'm going to stick my finger in the fire and have it not burn, unless you've got some really good ointment on top of your finger. You have to fall in line with certain principles of cause and effect that you have to learn from experience. So we're developing a skill here as we develop the perfections. Yesterday we started with the discernment faculties, which are discernment and goodwill. We started in on the truth perfections, which are truth, virtue, and persistence. We got through virtue. Um, before we go on to persistence, I'd like to ask if there are any questions based on things we talked about yesterday, things that were unresolved. Yes, Jeff. So, for confirm for confirmation, then, um, are you saying that um, if a person develops the Baramis to perfection, mm -hmm. they, in essence, are practicing the noble path and will lead to awakening? You've got the, the noble path sort of is in implicitly, either explicitly or implicitly in the list. The only one that's really implicit that seems to be lacking is jhana, right concentration. But as we'll see, it's a necessary part of practicing renunciation to develop that kind of happiness. So the, 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 eight, the ten perfections do take in the Eightfold Path. So when somebody's focusing on this, say, in Thailand, mm -hmm. would they be instructed at some point to turn to concentration in jhana? Well, say, just hey, to realize really that that's one of the implications. If you really want to practice renunciation and not, you know, not find it really onerous, You've really got to find an You've got to find an alternative source of happiness. Okay. And so, when they put this in the Abhidhamma, were they in effect saying, "We've pulled this out and extracted it like another way well, it of"? It wasn't just in the Abhidhamma. It's in Abhidhamma. It's in the late part of the suttas as well. The Sutta Bhittika, They've got these texts that were added on at the very end. There's the Buddha Wangsa and the Jardia Pitaka, um, which talk about the perfections. Okay. And, they, and they give the list. They don't, they don't explain how they derived it. As I said, they derive these from the Jataka tales, and the Jataka tales are arranged in such a way that the very last ten 
are each supposed to illustrate one of these ten perfections. So these later teachings, mm-hmm. they're not, per se, what the Buddha actually taught? Right. So, but, but the validity but, is strong enough but they're, they're, to... They're, they don't really conflict with it. Okay. So. They're just sharing a different perspective. Yeah. Another, another list, another way of dividing up the pie, basically. Any other questions based on yesterday? Uh, can you go over the difference between samaditi and pana? Okay. I mean, you you seem to be equating the two. Yeah, um, actually, banya or, or what I'm translating as discernment really covers both right view samaditi and also right resolve. Um, and so it's that's basically what we're talking about. If you want to understand what is what is what is discernment, okay, the discernment is seeing things in terms of first mundane right view, belief in karma and the belief in rebirth, and then transcendent right view in terms of the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths have their duties, which is also part of right view. And then from understanding the duties, then you actually say, okay, what are the things I have to make up my mind to do in order to fall in with that? That is also an aspect of discernment, realizing that these are not just truths to talk about, but they're actually truths to, to change the way you approach your actions. All of that comes under banya or discernment. Okay. Anything else? Okay, let's work on. Let's look at persistence on passage twenty-two in the readings. What is right effort? There's a case where one generates desire, endeavors, activates persistence, upholds and exerts one intent for the sake of the non-arising of evil, unskillful qualities that have not arisen, for the sake of the abandoning of evil, unskillful qualities that have arisen, for the sake of the arising of skillful qualities that have not yet arisen, and for the maintenance, non-confusion, increase, plenitude, development, and culmination of skillful qualities that have arisen. This is called right effort. That's the basic definition for right effort in the Eightfold Path. And it involves discernment. Um, in three ways explicitly mentioned in this passage and one way that's implicit. The three explicit ones are one, you have to figure out what's skillful and what's not skillful. The second one is generating desire. In other words, working on your motivation to make yourself want to do this. The third one is realizing that there are different types of effort that will be needed at different times. Some things you have to abandon, some things you have to develop some things you have to prevent, some things you have to maintain. And implicitly, there's a question of how much effort is enough? How much effort is too much? How much is too little? And um, that's not brought out in this particular passage, but in other passages in the canon where they talk about right effort, that's one of the big issues. So let's go down those four aspects. First, the distinction between skillful and unskillful. Basically, what is skillful is any action is, that is harmless, that will not cause any, anyone to give rise to more greed, aversion, and delusion in yourself, or try to do it in others. Um, any action that where you are not breaking the precepts yourself, or trying to get precept, other people to break the precepts. That would be a skillful quality of the mind. Um, some of the standard skillful ones are the 
factors of the Eightfold Path, the factors for awakening. Um, unskillful ones would be things like greed, aversion, and illusion. In fact, those are the roots of unskillfulness. Um, the five hindrances. And there's a long list of, you know, I, for, I keep forgetting the number, I think it's either 12 or 15 defilements, but I'm sure there's more than that. Um, so learning how to see this distinction, because when I do this, the results are going to be good, the results of this are going to be bad. Learning to discern that distinction and be able to learn from your past mistakes and learn from the past things you've done right, so you have an idea of whether something is skillful or not. That's the basic distinction you want to make. Um, we have, yesterday we were talking about that there are certain times when you need to use a relatively unskillful means in order to overcome something that is really unskillful. There was a case of, um, the, the Buddha says there's one case where you, you see that okay, you feel anger towards an enemy, and it's one of those cases where it's really hard to have goodwill for the enemy. And you tell yourself, okay, if I act on this anger, I'm going to do something stupid. I will either harm myself or, harm th or break things that belong to me, or I will think I'm doing something wise when it's really not wise. When I do something stupid like that, it's going to cause happiness to my enemy. Do I want to cause happiness to my enemy? So it's basically using spite to overcome your anger. <laughs> so it's like one of my students. So he used to be a, a cook he was in, in, in Singapore. At first he'd worked in the Restaurant de France in the Meridian Hotel. Came out to a monastery, decided he wanted to ordain, went back to Singapore, got another job. This time it was with the British Club. And so he was trying to show off his French cooking skills to the other cooks of the British Club, and they were saying, cool it, okay? This is the British Club. <laughs> the people here don't really care about good food. Just get the food out there, okay? <laughs> and so there was one night, though, that they had a, a, a fixed-price dinner, and one of the dishes in the dinner was asparagus soup. And it turned out more people showed up than they had expected, and they're running out of asparagus soup. So what to do? So he orders everybody else out of the kitchen, goes into the garbage, finds the shavings from the old asparagus that they used to make the earlier batch of soup, takes the garbage out, washes it off a little bit, makes a nice sauce bechamel, and then mixes the asparagus shavings into that. And that's the asparagus soup that they had for the rest of the dinner. And you know, people said it was the best soup they had that night. So. <laughs> so it's a basic principle. You learn how to use unskillful things if they are needed in order to overcome something that would be even worse. There's a legend they tell about um, King Narlesuan in Thailand. This is back in the 16th century. The Burmese had invaded Thailand and they had their camp in the western part of Thailand and Narlesuan, who had a long history with the Burmese viceroy, which I don't want to go into the details, um, decided to attack the Burmese camp and it was going to be a stealth elephant attack at dawn. <laughs> well, elephants are quieter than you might imagine. You know, they, walk down the, they walk down the road and they don't make a lot of noise. You know? so, so he's going to attack at dawn. So he rushes in from before dawn, arrives at the Burmese camp just at dawn as the dust settles. Turns out he had the fastest elephant. He was the only Thai person there. The other troops had not caught up with him. And so how is he going to save himself? The Burmese are waking up and he's surrounded by Burmese. He sees the Burmese viceroy and says, you know, the days of personal duels are almost dead and gone. Let's be the last people to do a duel together. Do you, do you have enough honor to do that? And so the Burmese viceroy says, okay, I'm, I'll, we'll have a personal duel. So the two of them get on their elephant backs and um, have a duel. And the race one kills the, the viceroy. 
And just as he's killing the Viceroy, the, the Thai troops finally catch up with him, and they're able to drive the Burmese back. This is one of the favorite incidents of Thai history. You can see this on, you go into Thai people's houses, they'll have little pillows of Nareso and killing the Burmese Viceroy. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. Needlepoint. <laughs> At any rate, Nareso was furious with his generals because he could have died. They didn't keep up with him. What is this? What kind of generals are you? So when they got back to Ayutthaya, which is the capital, he decided he was going to execute a couple of the generals to basically teach the rest of them a lesson. And there was a senior monk out in the forest nearby, and he heard about this, and so he called the king and said, you know, I really would like to talk to you. And so Nareswan goes to see the, the Burmese monk, then goes to see the monk. And the monk says, do you remember the story of the Buddha's awakening? Yes. When he was awakened, was he alone or was he surrounded by people? Well, he was alone. The five brethren had left him. And the monk said, that's why we remember him. He was able to do this alone. Now, you're going to go down in Thai history for having done this alone. <laughs> so, change Nareso's attitude. So he goes back and he forgives the generals. So that's a case of you're know, using an unskillful state, i.e. pride, to overcome something much, much worse. So this is, this is one of the lessons you're going to be learning as you practice, is there are some things that are maybe relatively unskillful but you use them for a skillful purpose, and then, then you eventually you go beyond them. We talked yesterday about a John Lee doing meditation contests with some of his other junior monks when he was a junior monk. May not have been the most skillful thing, but at least taught him some useful lessons that could prepare him to go further on the path later on. So don't be too doctrinaire about what's skillful and what's not skillful. Sometimes you read, as I, I read a a while back saying that your concentration involves staying with an object for a long period of time, which means it must involve attachment. Therefore, concentration should not be practiced. And so, yeah, there will be some attachment, but it's, you know, it's a necessary, useful attachment to go beyond a lot of other attachments. So, the distinction between what is skillful and unskillful also involves learning from your, your own experience and the practice when you might need to use something that is relatively unskillful to overcome something that's more unskillful. And don't, be, and don't be ashamed to use that. So that's the first use of discernment. The second use of discernment has to do with motivation. How do you motivate yourself to stick with a practice? To give up something that's hard to give up or to do something that's hard to do? And here the Buddha gives a long list of um, possible ways of motivating yourself. They all come down to the motivation coming from heedfulness and realizing if, you know, if I don't work on my developing my mind, there are going to be dangers down the line. If I do work on developing mind, I can, I can avoid those dangers. Realizing that your actions do make a difference and there are genuine dangers out there. We talked yesterday about skillful kinds of fear and the skill fear that you would do something unskillful that would cause harm down the line. That's, that's a legitimate fear that you actually want to protect. Other types of motivation the Buddha has you develop, one would be goodwill for yourself. You know, this is the path that's going to put an end to suffering. Why am I not really sticking with it? If I fall off the path, who knows how much more suffering I'm going to have. And there may be some suffering on the path itself, but it's nothing compared to the suffering that comes from not sticking with the path. So I do really love myself. And you say, yes, okay, that gives you motivation to practice. Um, Goodwill and compassion for others. There's a passage where the Buddha is talking about how if you realize, okay, if, I, if I attain a noble attainment, 
then the gifts that are given to me will more than repay the people who give them to me. So for their sake, I want to, I want to develop the qualities of the path. A healthy sense of shame is also a useful sense of motivation. In other words, there are certain things that you would be ashamed to do because you realize they're beneath you. Now, psychologists, you know, the word shame is a big red flag in a lot of psychology. But again, that's their sh the shame that they're talking about that they're saying is bad is the shame that is the goes together with low self-esteem. Here we're talking about the shame of high self-esteem. You know, you see, this is beneath me, and it's not the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of shamelessness. In other words, the person who says, "I don't care what people think. I don't care what, what what's right and wrong. I'm just going to do what I want to do." And so the opposite of that is, okay, I would be ashamed to do things that, you know, that the wise people would censure. And that's a really good, that's a really good quality to develop. It's, it keeps you, keeps you on the path and it protects you in a lot of ways. Um, there's the pride that comes with mastering a skill. The Buddha also use, has you use a sense of humor about your, about your defilements. Um, there are lots of People sometimes complain there's not much humor in the Pali Canon, and if you look at the suttas, there's some, but not much. Most of the humor is in the, in the Vinaya, which is the disciplinary rules. And the humor is there for a purpose, because if you see that the rules are written by someone who has a sense of humor, it's a lot easier to abide by the rules, because you see that they have an understanding of human nature. And then, too, you read these stories of ridiculous things that people do, and you see it. this is really ridiculous. And then you reflect on yourself, you know, oh yeah, that is, if I do that too, that's pretty ridiculous as well. And if you can step back and laugh at your own foibles, that gives you the motivation to say, okay, I really do want to go beyond this. And some of my favorite stories, um, there's one with a Julabandaka. He was a monk who was not all that bright intellectually, and occasionally it came his turn to, um, to teach the nuns. And one time it was his turn, and the, the nuns got the word, oh, it's Jula Bandaga is going to be teaching this week, and they turned to another nun, oh, this is not going to be effective at all. He's just going to take one saying of the Buddha and just repeat it over and over and over again. And so they show up, and they go through the formalities, and they say, okay, here's today's lesson. And he starts with that phrase of the Buddha, that saying of the Buddha, and just repeats it over and over and over again. And the nuns hear this, and they turn to each other and say, didn't we tell you this is not going to be effective at all? Well, he hears that. And even though he hadn't memorized that much, he had a few other tricks up his sleeve. So he levitates up in the air, splits himself into many, many versions of himself. Some of them shoot fire, some of them shoot smoke, some of them shoot water. And they start repeating that statement and many other statements of the Buddha. And then they say, wow, this is the most effective Dharma talk we've ever had. <laughs> well, he gets carried away. And keeps, uh, keeps up the show until after night, nightfall. Then he comes back down again. He says, okay, that's enough. You're dismissed. You can go back. So they're, the, the nunnery was in the city. And so they go back, and the city gates are closed. And back in those days, as soon as the sun set, you closed the city gates to make sure nobody came in. So they have to spend the night outside the city gates. And the next morning, they come in. As they're coming in, everybody says, oh, here come the nuns back from spending the night with the monks. <laughs> so that's why there's a rule that monks can't teach nuns after dark. <laughs> There's another one where a, a monk has 
done battle with a, a fire-breathing naga. Um, and word gets out that this, you know, this naga was pretty powerful and greatly feared, and this monk has defeated it. And so word gets out to the lay people, and they say, gee, you really want to make merit with this monk. Let's do something special. So they asked some of the other monks, what is something monks don't usually get? And it turns out they asked the wrong monks, and they asked some monks who say, well, the monks say, well, they, monks usually don't get hard liquor. <laughs> and so the next day, the lay people prepare little glasses of hard liquor for this monk as he goes through the city. And he takes a glass at each house and then basically falls down in a stupor outside of the city gates. And so the Buddha comes along with a group of other monks. And so, see this, let's, let, let's take him back. So they take him back to the monastery. And as they put him down, and they put him down with his head towards the Buddha and his feet in the other direction. But as the Buddha is talking to the monks, he keeps flipping and turning and flipping and turning. Finally, has his feet pointing toward the Buddha, which you don't do. And the Buddha said, Before, wasn't he respectful of us? Yes. Is he respectful now? No. Before, didn't he do battle with that fire breathing Naga? Yes. Can he do battle with a salamander now? No. <laughs> That's why we have the rule against taking alcohol. <laughs> so if you can learn to see your foibles as sort of ridiculous, you're able to motivate yourself, okay, I've really got to get beyond this. That's another way of motivating yourself on the path. So you have heedfulness, goodwill, sense of compunction, you know, fear of the, you know, what goes with heedfulness, a sense of shame, a sense of pride in your skills. There are lots of ways that you can motivate yourself in order to follow the path. And this is all a factor of, of discernment. Because the motivation that's going to work for you is something you have to learn how to psych yourself out. What's going to work and what's not going to work. So that's the second area in which we, we apply discernment to the practice of persistence or right effort. The third is figuring out what type of effort is appropriate right now. Um, and you notice there were four that were listed. You know, if, if, some, if an unskillful quality has not yet arisen, you do your best to prevent it from arising. If an unskillful quality has arisen, you do your best to get rid of it. As for, un, as for skillful qualities that have not yet arisen, you do your best to give rise to them, and then once you've got them, you try to maintain them. Four basic ways. For example, when you're sitting down to meditate, at the monastery we, ha we have chants beforehand, spreading thoughts of goodwill, reflection on the body. These are to prevent unskillful qualities from arising. You start reflecting on the fact of karma, you reflect on, the, you know, if you're tempted to be giving any thoughts of lust during your meditation, well, we try to do a preventive of that beforehand. Um, if you have some issues with somebody from work at the day, let's spread thoughts of goodwill first before you sit down and meditate so that when those thoughts come up, you can remind yourself, well, I spread goodwill to that person and it makes it easier. So you're doing that to prevent unskillful things from arising. If they have arisen, okay, then you, then you do the various things that the Buddha teaches about how to give, get rid of distracting thoughts. You, one is you just drop the thought and go back. Remind yourself, okay, this is unskillful, go back. If you find that that doesn't work, the next thing is you have to think about the drawbacks of thinking in that way. You know, if I were to think for an hour about this, where would this lead me? What kind of actions, what kind of impact is this going to have on my mind? Think about that until you, get, until you make up your mind that you really don't want to do that. One te technique I found useful is I ask myself when I'm involved in a th thought that's pretty unskillful, if this were a movie, would I pay to watch it? <laughs> 
you know, the acting is usually pretty horrible. The storyline is, you know, potted. Something where you can see the drawbacks of that kind of thinking. Third one, third technique of getting rid of something would be basically to ignore it. You know, the thought can be there in your mind, but you don't have to get involved. Remind yourself that it doesn't, if you're focusing on the breath, that thought does not destroy your breath. It's still there. It's like somebody chattering off in one side of the room. You've got work to do. Okay, let them chatter. You've got your work to do. Because a lot of the times, the, the thoughts are the kind of thing, that, you know, they're like stray dogs. You know, if you pay attention to them, they will keep coming back. And if you pay attention to the thoughts, it's like feeding the thoughts, so the dog would come back. Or it's like a crazy person come, coming to talk to you while you've got work to do. Even if you just turn to the crazy person to chase them away, they've got you. So you have to pretend like they're not there. So that's another way of dealing with unskillful thoughts that have arisen. The fourth one is if you, as you get sensitive to the breath energies in the body, if you notice that when this thought arises, there will be a tension at some part of the body, okay, relax that tension. Because the tension is what allows the thought to kind of take, take root and, and, and be maintained in your mind. So if you can breathe through the tension, that relaxes it. And then the fourth way of dealing with an unskillful thought or attitude that's come up in your mind is if none of these other techniques work, you just press your tongue against the roof of your mouth and just say, so I will not think that thought. Just really kind of force it out for the time being. This last technique, because it doesn't use any discernment at all, is will, will work for only a little while, but sometimes it's what you need. It's like having a toolbox. And this is your sledgehammer. And you don't need your sledgehammer for every job, but every now and then that's the only thing that's going to do the, do the work. So that's dealing with abandoning unskillful thoughts that have arisen, giving rise to skillful thoughts. So once you pick up your meditation topic, once you pick up your intention to stick with it, that's the arising of that. And then using mindfulness to remember to maintain that, that would be the maintenance so that this, this skillful quality could develop. There's another way of analyzing the types of types of art that effort that you might put in. And in, in Majjhima too, they talk about seven types of right effort, and these come under three of the ways of um, exercising right effort. In other words, under preventing unskillful things, there's he says there's using, restraint, and avoiding. Using here means when you're using the requisites, you try to think about. What is my intention for using my using clothing, food, shelter, medicine? Am I abusing these things? In other words, if, you know, food is just basically to keep the body going and to keep it healthy. Shelter is just to give you the protection you need from the elements. Clothing is to keep you covered against the elements and make you, make you presentable. To what extent am I using this properly and to what extent am I going overboard? Because you have to remember that the more you use of these things, of course, the more burden you're going to be placing on the earth. Of course, someone will say, of course, you're keeping the economy going, but look at the economy. Is this an economy we want to keep going? <laughs> you wonder. But for the sake of your own, your own well-being, you have to figure, I don't want to be using more than I really need. That's really necessary. So that would be preventing unskillful qualities from developing in your, in your, in your behavior. Restraint is restraint of the senses. When you look at something, why are you looking at it? Who's doing the looking? You know, John Lee has that great passage where he says, you know, you have all these germs and worms and other things in your body going through your brain. 
Maybe they're just kind of leaving stray thoughts behind as they go through the blood, blood system and things that have nothing to do with your own well-being. So when you're looking at something, is it, are you looking or is your lust looking or is your anger looking? So what's, what's the motivation for engaging the senses right there? And then secondly, when you engage in a certain way, does it actually give rise to skillful mental qualities or unskillful ones? So you're looking at your involvement with the senses not so much as looking for things that you like or things that you want you dislike so you can get a, you can get, a, get a charge out of talking about how much you dislike them. It's more seeing it as a cause and effect system or a cause and effect process. That are reasons for looking and listening. You know, why would you turn on Rush Lumbo? It's usually not a skillful <laughs> skillful <laughs> skillful impulse. Whether you're right wing or left wing, it's not skillful to listen to not Rush Lumbo, you know. Um, You have to ask yourself, why am I looking for this kind of trouble? And you have to realize, we talked yesterday about you know, working on you know, having an internet, and internet addiction. A lot of this comes down to lack of restraint. Because it is so easy to give in to the impulse now, to search out anything at all on the web. And you have to ask yourself, when I, when I click on this, who's clicking? What impulse in me is clicking? And if, I, if I'm going to go to that particular site or that, that particular place, what is the impact going to be on my mind? And you've got to think about this. Because if you're filling up your mind with garbage in the course of the day, it means you sit down to meditate, you've got a lot of garbage you've got to clean out. And if you've been allowing greed, aversion, and delusion to you know, click your way through the internet, they're going to click your way through your meditation. So you've got to look at how am I engaging in this, and to what extent is this developing unskillful qualities and what extent is it developing skillful ones. So that's restraint as a way of preventing. And then there's, there's a passage where the Buddha says, you learn to avoid things like you, you, don't, you don't walk into a cesspool, you don't trip over cows. Um, in other words, if you know something is going to be dangerous, you stay away from it. And you can, you can extrapolate this into daily life in all kinds of ways. Under the heading of abandoning, the Buddha says, you know, if any thoughts are involved with sensuality, ill will, harmfulness, you try to destroy them. You don't let them hang around. You don't just note they're coming, because they sometimes they come and then they stay. You've got to say, I can't let this stay in my mind, and then you have to figure out what's the most effective way of getting rid of them. And finally, in developing, under the heading of developing, there's developing the seven factors for awakening, Developing mindfulness, the ability to analyze what's going on in your mind to the point where you can, when you're giving rise to right effort inside. Which, when you know that, especially when you're meditating, the effort is right when it does give sense of well being and rapture comes, a refreshment comes into the mind. And then from that, you, you develop calm, calm, concentration, equanimity. And then there's another aspect where the Buddha says you, you see which questions are worth following through with it, which, which questions are worth trying to answer, and which ones are not. For him, the questions that are worth answering is, what am I doing that's leading to suffering? What can I do to stop? The questions that are not worth answering is, um, do I exist? Do I not exist? <laughs> do I have a self? Do I not have a self? Those are the questions the Buddha said. Just put those ones aside. It gets you involved in needless 
discussions. And you can go down the list of you know, questions that you tend to ask yourself that really are useless. This would be a useful exercise. What are the questions I ask myself in the course of the day? Try writing them down and look at it, look at it and say, okay, is this, this a really good question to be getting, getting myself involved with? So these are various ways in which you can see there are lots of different types of effort. In other words, something comes up that should be maintained, you have to maintain it. Something comes up that should be prevented, or should be abandoned, and then you do what you can to prevent. This, um, the effort to prevent is something that tends to get... My English is slipping me. Um, tends to get overlooked in the practice, because all too often we're, we're taught to, you know, when you're meditating, you have to be in the present moment. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry about the past. Actually, at the very end of your meditation, it's a really good, a really good time to think about what's going to happen in the course of the day. What difficulties am I going to encounter? Especially the kind of difficulties that would lead me to do something unskillful. Can I think my way around that? And give yourself, give yourself, you know, ten minutes or something to think about that. You know, you have a boss who knows how to push your buttons. How do you make sure your buttons are not available? Or, or they're disconnected? Someone once told me, I, I gave a talk one time to a group of people, and this one guy came up afterwards and said, I, it, after listening to your talk, I was really, really angry with you. And I said, well, why was that? He said, I don't know where your buttons are. <laughs> <laughs> Which made me stop and think, this is a whole series of Dharma teachers were giving talks at this place. And it's, you, you like the Dharma teachers whose buttons you can push? I don't, I don't know if that's a good thing. Um, but I made a remark, I said, well, this is why we wear robes. You, know, you, can't, you can't see our buttons. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be a good idea at the end of a meditation, if you know you've got a difficult situation coming up in the course of the day, or you can't anticipate it, just sit down. How, what would be a good way of avoiding that? or avoiding saying or doing something unskillful. There was a, a man I knew one time, he was telling me he worked for an office where there were a lot of um, born-again Christians. And they had an office party one time. And he knew that at some point in the, during the office party, or office picnic actually, that someone was going to sit, sit him down and have a good talk about his soul. And he wanted to avoid that. And so first they had a volleyball game. And at the end of the volleyball game, he said, you know, I want to compliment you on what wonderful Christians you are. You haven't bothered me about being a Buddhist at all. <laughs> <laughs> and there was no soul-to-soul talk. <laughs> so if you can learn how to use your, use your wits to avoid things like that, that's actually good use of your, your time as you're meditating. Finally, there's the issue of what's the right amount of effort that's, that's good. And we have two readings, reading number 23 and 24. And rather than going th reading through them, I'll just sort of give you the main points. 23 is basically making the point that there are two types of causes of suffering in the mind. There are the, cause, the types that will go away when you just look at them. You recognize, oh, this is causing suffering, and you stop. It, it's nothing that's deeply rooted. And it's been able to act in your mind because it just haven't been paying attention. There's the other type, though, where you really have to, as the Buddha said, exert a fabrication. In other words, you have to make an effort to go past it. Now, he uses the word exert a fabrication. We talked about the three kinds of fabrication yesterday, right? There's bodily fabrication, which is your breath. 
Verbal fabrication is how you talk to yourself about something. Technically, it's directed thought and evaluation. And then mental fabrication is feeling tones of pleasure or pain, neither pleasure nor pain. And then perceptions, the labels that you use in your mind. And you realize, okay, this, this particular problem I've got in my mind here is constructed out of these things. I'm going to have to learn how to deconstruct it in those terms. So you, you start with the breath. If you find the way you're breathing is uncomfortable or getting you on the edge, try to breathe in a calmer way, a way that's more relaxing, that's way that feels more refreshing. And then look at how you're talking to yourself about the issue. What are you saying about it? Can you reframe the issue? And then finally, in terms of the perceptions, what are the perceptions you're holding in the back of your mind? That says, you know, this is, this is, what this person did is outrageous. I mean, partly this is usually your lizard brain talking to you. Certain images that will come into mind that, that this particular person or this particular situation call up. You say, can I retrain the mind to think in different ways, to hold different perceptions? So that, that's the case. Some causes of stress will go away simply by looking at them, and others will go away when you, only when you make an effort of this sort. So in that case, the, what's the right amount of effort depends on the task at hand. Under 24, the, the issue of this is the story of Sona. Um, There's this one monk named Sona, and the backstory for Sona was that um, he was so delicately brought up, his parents were so rich and he lived in such luxury, that he had hair growing on the soles of his feet. <laughs> and one of the parts of the story is that the king hears about this, he says, I gotta see this. And so it's an invitation for Sona to come to the palace. And the parents get the invitation, they realize that there's only one reason the king wants to see Sona, he wants to see the hair on his feet. And so they take the son aside and they say, look, the king wants to see the hair on the sole of your feet. So don't just sit there with your feet pointed out at the king. Sit cross-legged like this with your feet so you can see the soles of your feet with, at a glance and that'll be enough. So at any rate, after, after that, he gets to meet with the Buddha and he decides he wants to ordain. And the story goes that he was doing walking meditation um, until the soles of his feet started bleeding. And so he sits down and he's discouraged. Here I've been putting forth this effort and my feet are bleeding. Even now I still haven't gained awakening. Maybe I should disrobe. And so as soon as this thought goes into his head, the Buddha suddenly <laughs> appears in front of him. And you know, how would you feel? <laughs> You've been thinking something you know you shouldn't be thinking and all of a sudden, boom, the Buddha's right there. Um, he said, were you thinking of disrobing? Yes. Um, and then he says, back here when you were a, a layperson, did you play the lute? He said, yes, I played the lute. And he uses the word gusala there, this, uh, just as a side, an aside here. Sometimes you hear the word gusala translated as wholesome. And I think this is one of the passages that shows that they don't really mean wholesome when they're talking about using the word gusala, it's more skillful. Were you skilled, he's not saying were you playing wholesome songs on the lute, it's were you skilled in playing the lute. And he said yes. And when your lute was too tightly tuned, did it play well? No. When it was too loosely tuned, did it play well? No. He said, well, in the same way, and apparently back in those days the lutes had five strings. You tune your level of persistence to what, you're, what you have, and then you tune the other faculties of conviction, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment to the level of energy you've got. So in other words, you don't push yourself too hard, you don't push yourself too softly. You try to figure out, what is the right amount of push I can give right now? So in other words, you come home from work at night, you're tired, it's been a long day, 
That's not the time to sit down and say, okay, I'm not going to get up until I've achieved full awakening. You basically say, this is the time I want to see through the hour before I get up. Okay? There are other times, so when you do have more energy, in which, in which case you really should put forth more effort. So it's, this is the other way of determining how much effort is the right amount of effort, i.e., how much energy do you have. So those are the ways in which you use discernment in order to develop your persistence. Seeing what's skillful and what's not, and also realizing that there are times when you have to do what is relatively unskillful in order to guess, pass something that's more unskillful. Working on your motivation, how do you keep yourself so you want to be making an effort in the practice? Then realizing the many different types of effort that you can employ, preventing, abandoning, developing, and maintaining. And realizing that the amount of effort that you should that you put in should be based one in the task at hand and two the amount of energy you've got. So, so are there any questions on any of that? That last analogy of the five. The last analogy is often taught as mindfulness is the key. To, to, no, mindfulness is the A that you tune everything to. Is that an alternative reading from the Samyutta and the Kaya or something? No, there's no alternative reading. You start out with your persistence. Really? Yeah. It's so often taught. Words, how much energy do you have? Oh. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, that that story was great. The, the Thai the Burmese War because that explains a, uh, explains a lot about. Time sort of subtle Dhamma wars. Uh, is that documented somewhere? Is that very famous? It turns out that it is a legend, and there there is a version. <coughs> there is a <coughs> there's a Thai chronicle that tells this story, but there are other other versions in other chronicles. But it's the best version. Is something one could like find on the internet? <coughs> if you type in Naresuan, yes, N A R E S U A N. Talk a little bit more about tuning your level of persistence. I'm trying to imagine what that, how I would. In other words, how much that. energy do you have at any particular time? And then your expectations about what I will be able to accomplish today will be dependent on how how much that, energy you've got. Is that like saying I got three miles to go and I got to pace myself? That's part of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And other times you say, boy, I really, um, I do have the energy I need today. This would be a good day to put more effort into the practice. Question behind you. Um, in 24, mm -hmm. I'm interested in the word sankara. And I know you've, you've written 72 books. <laughs> and, but not and I, I would, I would, I would, uh, ask you uh, to write a book on Sankara. It's a very <laughs> difficult word. I don't know, maybe you have. Not yet, no. Okay. It would be really uh, helpful to me because it's so, so multivalent in mm -hmm. this word. Um, it says exer uh, where am I here? Exertive fabrication. Yeah, exerting fabrication. Mm -hmm. But could it also that means that fabrications can be passive. Or could it be also said here, could you drop the exertion and just uh, 
translated fabricating. Well, the funny thing is that the, sometimes that phrase is in the Pali would, would be fabricated and exertion, sometimes it's exertive fabrication. In other words, you're going to have to put some effort into this, realizing, okay, this, these are the thing, component factors from which this mental state is made up. It can be an emotion, it can be a whatever. And I've got to learn how to analyze it in terms of those, those terms so that I can figure out, okay, which one do I need to change? Do I need to change the way I'm talking about it? Do I need to change the way I'm breathing around it? Do okay. I need to change? And a lot of that will involve asking new questions. But let me step back a little bit to the, to the fabrication, this word fabrication. So not all fabrications have exertion in, in them. Some are easier than others. I mean, there's going to be an effort in every one. Okay. But this, you, he, the, the poly, the canon, or um, there's, a, there's, an, there's an emphasis on the making this act. Making the effort, yeah. You have to put some effort into changing this. Okay. Good, thank you. I mean, an ideal example of this would be, say, of John Mahabhu's analysis of how he dealt with pain. And he was realizing that the perceptions he had around the pain were the problem. And so he had to think up new ways of perceiving the pain. For example, is the pain a solid mass? Well, no. Well, just learn how to perceive it as individual moments. Um, and then you chase the individual moments around. Which one is the worst? And you begin to realize that you, know, th- you can chase it around. And what out of the corner of your eye seemed like one mass solid pain with a particular sharp point, when you actually investigate it and take it apart in terms of those new perceptions, is not quite the same as it was before. Okay, so that's like, I've heard fabrication, um, uh, 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 another way of um, translating fabrication is program, to program. Here it sounds like, what you're describing is sort of a reprogramming mm-hmm, mm-hmm. source. Does that work? That would work, yeah. Okay. Oh, saying that here in Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> let me, don't quote me on that yet. Let me, let me think about that. But, you know, you find your mind is programmed to see things a certain way. Can you do the reprogramming? And sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's very hard. Because a lot of these things go, you know, seem to be really, really deeply entrenched. else. Okay, let's move on to giving. First under the heading of relinquishment, there's that passage, if by forsaking a limited ease you would see an abundance of ease, the enlightened man would forsake the limited ease for the sake of the abundant. And then there's a phrase by Venero, uh, verse by Venosupia, I'll make a trade, aging for the ageless, burning for the unbound, the highest peace, the unexcelled rest from the yoke. I'm pairing burning with the unbound. Remember unbound there is the way they described a fire that had gone out. And they used the word unbound because they felt that while a fire was burning, it was clinging to its fuel and at the same time was trapped in its fuel because it was clinging. And then when it went out, it let go and was, was freed, which is a great image for how you're going to let yourself free your mind. It's not the case that you are, you are, the aggregates are not clinging on you. You're clinging to them, and that's what traps you. But the point here is it's a trade. And, and learning to give, give things up and, get, and practice renunciation, we're not doing it for the sake of 
depriving ourselves. We're doing it because we're trading something of lesser value in for something of greater value. So, with giving. First, remember the, the, the practice of giving here is not just of giving of material things. You can give your time, you can give of your energy, you can give of your knowledge, you can give of your forgiveness. All of these things come under giving. In fact, I would argue that when people want to get engaged in social action as Buddhists, it should be best regarded as a kind of giving. You're giving your time and energy for the purpose of a particular goal that you want to attain. And of course, the way we understand giving, especially trying to master this as a skill, is to see how it's related to karma. One, and the very first thing about karma is it must be done voluntarily. There's no pressure in Buddhism. I was talking a while back to someone who thought that the you know, when they talk about how you know, dana is a 2,500-year-old tradition of Buddhism, well, this person also thought that the dana talk was a 2,500-year-old tradition <laughs> of Buddhism, and said, no, 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 this is a 30-year-old tradition. The Buddha never gave dana talks. When he would talk about generosity, it would be after someone had been generous. He wasn't trying to talk them into giving something, but he was saying, let's rejoice in the fact that you've given something. And this is why you know, he gave the Dharma, Dharma that's its original gift. Because the act of giving is basic to the practice. There's a quote I have in here at the very end of the giving section where Lumpudun says, you know, the Dharma is one thing clear through. This is one way of interpreting it. It's all about giving. It's something you have to give in various levels of subtlety as you go on. But to begin with, it has to be voluntary. When King Basenity asked the Buddha, where should a gift be given? He was used to, you know, Brahmins would say, well, give to the Brahmins. Jains would say, give to the Jains, and so forth. And so I was suspecting the Buddha would say, well, give to the Buddhists. And the Buddha said, no, give where you feel inspired, or you feel it would be well used. So there's no pressure at all. There's no ought. You, you've got to give. There's, not, there's none of that in the Buddhist teachings. And that's to pre preserve the fact that Forgiving the act of giving to really be important spiritually, it has to be done voluntarily, and it's basically your first experience when you, as a child, your first experience of freedom of choice. You, know, you have something and you could use it, but no, you'd rather give it, and especially when no one has forced you. That that means a lot more than if you say, "Well, it's so, so and so's birthday, so and so's Christmas, you've got to give them." That's one thing, but just because out of the goodness of your heart, you want to give something. That's something that sticks with you. And I, I, can, I can actually remember, I think, the first gift I gave, I didn't have to give it because it was somebody's whatever, um, Christmas or whatever. We had moved to Kansas, and after living on a farm, it was a strange experience living in a town where you could get on your bike, and, and within five minutes you were downtown where there were stores, and you could buy things. And so I walked into a store one time with my allowance money, and there was an egg separator. You know, those little plastic things that you put an egg in and it would keep the yolk and the white would go through. And my mother was quite a baker and she, I had seen her spend lots and lots of time you know, separating eggs first time. So I thought she'd like that, so I got it for her. And years later, after she died, we were going through her stuff and we found the egg separator. <laughs> it had been, you know, been through the dishwasher and was kind of, you know, kind of dis you know wasn't, wasn't an egg separator anymore. But she'd kept it even, nonetheless. So I guess that meant a lot to her, too. So, to, pre to protect that quality of giving, the Buddha would say there was no pressure. Even to this day, when monks are asked, 
where should I give this gift? You have to say, give where you feel it would be well used, well cared for, or where you feel inspired. There was a time several years back when someone called me up. His mother was going to be giving a $2 million to a Buddhist center. And he said, um, so where would you recommend that she give it? And I said, tell her to give where she feels inspired and where it would be well used and whatnot. Because that was what I had to say. And so it went to the other center. <laughs> And so I thought, at least, at least I've got my, my virtue is intact, and it's worth more than, <laughs> and it's worth more than two million dollars now. <laughs> so that's the number one point about giving within the Buddhist context. It's got to be voluntary. Secondly, as I said earlier, you approach it as a skill. In other words, you don't just give on impulse. You think where where would to get the most out of this gift? What would be the best impact of this gift? You've got to think, one, about your motivation for why you're giving it. Two, your attitude while you're giving it. In other words, the Buddha said you should be attentive when you do it. In other words, pay careful attention, be polite about doing it. Don't just kind of cast it off. Um, give with conviction that this is actually going to be good. You're not just going through the motions. And you really have empathy for the, for the recipient. You're doing this for to help the recipient. You have empathy for their, for their needs. So first you look at your motivation and your attitude. Secondly, you look to the results. In terms of the results in general, generosity in general, the people, as the Buddha says, people will find you charming, admirable, you'll have a good reputation. When you approach assemblies, you will do so unabashed, and those are all in the present lifetime. And in the future lifetime, there's a good rebirth, and you'll be wealthy as a result of having been generous. There was a Thai John, who would give a Dharma talk, he's, one of the problems in, in Thai Buddhism is a lot of Thais are really happy to be generous, but not so happy to practice precepts and not so happy to meditate. And so he said, you've got to watch out. If you are generous but you don't practice the precepts and don't meditate, you have a good chance of being born as a dog in an American home. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, it's comfortable surroundings, but you don't understand a thing. You know. He said, if you're generous and you're virtuous, but you're not, you don't meditate, you'll be born as a human being with wealth, but you'll probably, your wealth will probably destroy you. In other words, you won't know how to use your wealth wisely. We see lots of cases of that around us. If you want the discernment to use your wealth well, then you have to meditate. That was his way of dealing with that problem. The Buddha also would talk about, in, in terms, in, aside from the results of generosity in general, he said there are results of particular gifts, which are based on whom you give to. In other words, do you give to someone who is practicing for the end of passion, aversion, and delusion, or just to give to anybody in general? What kind of gift is good to give? He said you want to give in season. In other words, this is the time of year when someone might need a blanket. Okay, you give a blanket. cold part of the year, it's a warm part of the year. Um, there are times of the year in Thailand where food is hard to come by. This is where you bring out your stores of food, um, that kind of thing. So you give something in season. And also try to give without adversely effect, affecting yourself or others. That means you don't overextend yourself in being generous. And also you don't steal from Peter to pay Paul. <laughs> So you think about you, you know, think seriously about when you're being generous because it will have a big impact. 
in the future. So you want to do it as a skill. But again, you take that on voluntarily as a skill. If you decide, to, I don't care who I give to, I just want to give to everybody in general or anybody I feel, you know, impulse to do, no one can say no. In other words, you give where you feel inspired. But the Buddha says, if you want to get the most out of the gift, in terms of your own karmic consequences and also in terms of really helping the world, look at you know the, what your attitude is towards giving. Make sure that you're giving something that really is appropriate, and that you're not adversely affecting yourself or others. So, so for instance, with the the gifts of a person of integrity. Under passage 28, having given a gift a sense of conviction that this is going to be a good thing, you will be wealthy with many possessions, you will be well-built, handsome, and extremely inspiring, endowed with a lotus-like complexion. <laughs> the Buddha's beauty advice. <laughs> be generous. Okay. <laughs> okay, when you Give attentively, in other words, you, you show respect to the people that you're giving things to. You don't just kind of cast it off. Your children, wives, slaves, servants, and workers, wives. Notice that, wives? Oh. <laughs> Back in those days they had wives instead of a wife. Listen, will listen carefully to you, will lend them your ear, and they serve you with understanding hearts. Having given a gift in season, then your goals are filled in season. I knew a woman in Thailand who, let me back up a bit, there's, there's a um, custom in Thailand that on the, on the, what they call the one prat, which would be the full moon, the new moon, and the half moon days. Those are the days when people would go to the monastery to give gifts. She would always go the day before, because she had a durian orchard, and she said, I want my crops to come out early before the rest of the people's crops. <laughs> <laughs> And she was convinced it was working. So, I'm just tossing that out there. <laughs> Having given gift with empathetic heart, your mind will enjoy to the enjoyment of the five strings of leisure, sensuality. In other words, you will enjoy your wealth. They have a case in, there's a case in the canon where this one guy gave a gift to a um, private Buddha, and then afterwards regretted it. He said, I could have actually you know, used that myself and given it to my servants. And so in a future lifetime, in the lifetime of our Buddha, he gets reborn. And he has lots of wealth, but he can't enjoy it. He, gets in a, he, gets, he got, got in his cart and he would get dizzy, so he couldn't walk in his cart. He had to ride in his cart and he had to walk. If he ate good food, he'd get sick. If he lived in his house, fleas would get on him, so he'd have to live off in a little shack. So try to have empathy for the people that you're giving, so that you can actually enjoy Enjoy the results of your results of your generosity. Passage thirty. Here, Venerable Sariputta is talking about to the Buddha about what are the reasons why a gift of a certain sort does not bear great food or great benefit, whether the same gift can bear great food and great benefit. And the Buddha says it basically has to do with your motivation. And here we have different levels of motivation. The lowest one is seeking your own profit with a mind attached to the reward, seeking to store up yourself with the thought, I will enjoy this after death. In other words, I'm making me generous now so it'll be wealthy in the next lifetime. That's the lowest motivation. Next, higher than that, 
Simply giving is good. It's a good thing to be generous. Higher than that is my ancestors did this, so it would not let, be right for me to let this old family custom be discontinued, so you be generous. Um, higher than that is, I am well off, these people are not well off, it would not be right for me being well off not to give to a gift to those who are not well off. In other words, you see other people in need, you realize you have more than you, you, you need, you want to give it out of, a sense of, out of a sense of fairness. That's a higher motivation. Higher than that is that just as the great sages of the past made sacrifices, I will make a great sacrifice. Higher than that is when this gift of mine is given, it makes the mind serene, a sense of gratification and joy arise. In other words, it just feels good to give. That's the high, higher motivation. And even higher than that is this is an ornament for the mind, a support for the mind. In other words, it's a natural expression of the quality of your mind at that point. So these are higher and higher and higher levels of motivation for giving. Given what you've written about the complexity of kamma, mm -hmm. um, these examples seem very linear. They're tendencies. And that's how you have to realize that an action does have a tendency to lead to a certain kind of result. Now, whether it's going to be fast or slow, that's going to depend on all these other karmic factors. So the, um, the problem with it is if you're mixing untold lifetimes of untold actions, mm -hmm. both skillful and unskillful, even suggesting a tendency like this would seem... Well, it's, you know, you've got a you've got a stew and you put all kinds of things in. If you put some salt in, it's going to be saltier than if you didn't. Right? But that depends. What else are you mix If you put salt in and then you put a lot more water and then you put a lot more other things. I'm just wondering, because sometimes, um, sometimes the example the, the Buddha gives seems just incredibly linear. Mm -hmm. that, and yet he's offering in other teachings this incredible complexity that, look, you, you know, act skillfully, that will return skillful. Mm -hmm. Unskillful will return unskillful. But never as simple as if you do this, you'll get that. But in, but in other examples, he does offer that right. simplistic. He did, he did that, he got that. So mm -hmm. it's almost um, just seems inconsistent to the whole realm of how of the complexity with which he talks about kamma. Basically, if you say all all things all things being equal, all other things being equal, this would be this would lead to this tendency. Okay, so you never know really the mix, but right, right, and and he doesn't encourage people to trace things back. So you know, I have, I'm experiencing this because some you know which lifetime in the right. past, but you know, okay, there was some there was, you know, the fact that I'm doing pretty well means I must have been generous at some point. And the encouragement there is, okay, you don't know how complex your mixture is, but put some good ingredients in okay. while you're conscious of what you're putting in. So this seems to be his foundation. Right. If you continue to do skillful, at some point, at some point if you're skillful completely skillful, yeah, you will finish. Whereas if you keep mixing, mm -hmm. 
which which is the it uh, seems to me really um, uh, what's the word um, terrifying actually that yeah. if you if you keep mixing the skillful and the unskillful it, mm-hmm. this could go on. Mm-hmm. But for, you know, for some people, for people who are in pretty much heavily invested in doing what's unskillful, the Buddha. One should say, hey, karma is just so complex you can't understand it at all. That's not a helpful teaching. Okay. You've got to get people to figure out, okay, put more skillful stuff into your mix. So depending on his audience, he's needing to right. mm-hmm. be either... Emphasize either the, the more, or these are the tendencies, and then with the, with the proviso, okay, sometimes it's complex, so you can't anticipate right away. Because sometimes you get, you know, like... What meta is surrounded by five casinos? <laughs> and I say it's a trap for Thai people. Either they don't even make it to the monastery, <laughs> or after having made monet, made monet, merit at the monastery, they want to measure the amount of merit they got. So they'll stop off on the way out. I don't encourage that, but, okay. but that that is the kind of simplistic thinking you sometimes get, okay. and the Buddha would discourage that. But he, want, he would not discourage you. Say, well, you know, Jeff, you know, your your comic past is so complex. Gee, I don't really know whether you would benefit from generosity or not. He said you would benefit from generosity. Okay. He said, in fact, if you knew the results of generosity, you would not eat without having shared first at all. You know. So categorically, he's always suggesting be skillful. Do what's skillful. You're, you're never going to go wrong with that. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Just at what the mix will be, and you know, how many lifetimes it'll take, or how quickly it'll, the results will come back. You can't guarantee that. But he said, "This is the, this. You put this into the mix. This is what's going to come out." And similarly, sometimes what he says seems really punitive, in the sense that um, rather than well, this person gave to a private Buddha, mm-hmm. and he did get wealth. Wealth. Well. Right at the end there, he thought maybe he could use it in a different way, and he suffered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it's almost like, well, it's good that he gave, but... Well, in that case, the, the mind state was such that it kind of spoiled the results. So he was just really, um, at that point, suggesting, say, you really have to be careful all the way through. Right. I remember one story you shared. Um, this very poor person couldn't give up his jacket. Mm-hmm. He wanted to give up something. So at the end, he gives it up, he gets from a king, he gives more, he gets more from a king. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, the Buddha said something like, he would have gotten even more if he'd done had he done it earlier. And yeah. I think, why? what's the point of that? I mean, he was a poor person, he gave up his jacket. Well, that's for the next poor person. <laughs> to, to give up earlier. Okay. Earlier, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't drag things out. Because the Buddha had to drag out the Dharma talk until midnight before this guy would give up his jacket. <laughs> so he knew, he was just he, waiting. He knew this guy was, okay. was struggling with this, so he... Okay. So we don't really know when the Buddha is what what he's. And this is also teaching. the commentary. So, stories in the commentary you have to back off a little bit. But okay, great, thank you. Mm-hmm. Any other questions on generosity? Could you elaborate on um, having the thought? This is an ornament for the mind, a support for the mind, because. Um, I go as far as understanding I am well off, these are not well off. Mm-hmm. And then that seems pretty good. Mm-hmm. So I don't quite follow why the others are. The other ones are higher? Yeah. Okay. 
Okay, well, the great sacrifice, this is when you decide, I'm going to make a big gift to a lot of people. And you very rarely see that. But the Buddha says, you know, if you, that there's a lot of merit to that. Okay. And then higher than that is, it makes the mind serene. The fact that you're focusing on what is the impact that this is having on my mind. You know, this leads to concentration. So you, you basically you're understanding what gratitude is doing to yourself. That and also what um, the satisfaction of generosity, Gener- where generosity. it should be experienced, where you should look for it. Because where you know, that's the sense, well, it's not right that I do this. There's kind of a sense of moral obligation there. Yeah. And not, not necessarily be joy. And then the last one is more of kind of more of that. It's even higher expression that, that this is just a natural expression of the mind. It, at that point, it becomes effortless. You get something you want to give. Okay. Thanks. Question. Question here. So I. Uh, for giving, uh, some, is it is it a one of the things that I use as a motivation for giving is let the giving become a habit, mm-hmm. so that uh, we don't I don't know whether I'm going to be in a position to give later on or not. So if I develop the habit right now, and if I get into the habit of giving, 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 then maybe I will be in a position to give, and at that time I'll I will want to give. Mm-hmm. Um, so. That I don't find exactly included in this list of, uh, what do you say? Motivations. Motivations. Uh, There was one thing that came to my mind, and then there's another question after that. Okay, I don't know why it's not included. Okay, so (laughs) maybe that's not a a right frame to think of it. I mean, it's it's a good motivation, but then you ask, why do you want it to be, why do you want it to be a habit? So that... um, at the very least, I would not fall off the path. Mm-hmm. Um, at the very least, I'll find, you know, I'm I'm very unsure if I'll be able to touch the true Dhamma. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. at the very least, in some lifetime, I would want to try, touch the true Dhamma. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so that at least I don't want to fall off the path. So, uh, if generosity becomes a habit, I'm I have a feeling that maybe I would at least meet mm-hmm. somebody. Uh, who might be able to put me on the right mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. path, right mm-hmm. track? Mm-hmm. So it's like it's like trying to create a um, a, a sort of a a net, a safety net. Safety maybe? net. Yeah. Okay, that, that's that's going back to um, seeking your own profit with a mind attached to the reward. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> It just went back to that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, got to work on this. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> At least I'll work it out from there. Okay. Yeah. But uh, there's another question. Um, so sometimes after after the act of giving or whatever it is, um, the I don't. There is quite a bit of joy, but I don't know how to actually use it in the meditation. It's all. Sometimes it seems like. The images of have of of all the of all the events and all that stuff seem to replay, and then I I'm like no, I don't want to 
think about this. I want to go back to my breaths. So when you're feeling discouraged in your practice, this is a good time to think about. You know, I do have some merit. Because some people say, well, I just, maybe I just don't have it to meditate. Maybe I don't have the goodness enough to meditate. And you remind yourself, okay, I've been virtuous, I've been generous, I've got all these good qualities. That's when you call it up. And if you find that you're, you've called up one particular instance of generosity that was, was good in the past, and the next time you're feeling discouraged, try to call up another instance of generosity. In other words, don't try to keep milking one act of generosity all, right. all the time. Hmm. Which, which is why generosity should be part of a regular practice. Right. Should become a habit. Should become a habit. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. With these hurricanes, uh, I gave money to both of them. Mm-hmm. So the question in my mind is, I don't know if I gave enough. Mm-hmm. I, I'm... I was generous under normal situations, but I could have given a lot more mm-hmm. and not hurt myself. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I'm sort of, you know, just sitting here, I'm anguishing over. Don't anguish about it. Just ask yourself, well, if I felt I didn't give enough, maybe there's something else I might give to as well. Okay. All right. So, okay, thank you. Where you feel inspired. Okay. A question back there? Yes. Uh, just a quick question on the uh, gratification, the, basically the higher order, gratification and joy arises. How is that um, separated, or, or, and hopefully not to overthink it, from reward? Right? Because the, okay, the first, uh, it, all of them have their rewards, let's put it that way. And it's just a question, where are you looking for your reward? Are you looking for it in the sense of, I would like to be wealthy in a previous lifetime, a future lifetime, or is it more, I would I appreciate this quality of mind, so it makes it easier for me to meditate, it makes it easier for me to develop good qualities. Isn't that selfishness then? Nope. This is for a higher purpose. Remember, it's always a trade. The Buddha never talks about totally selfless gift. There's going to be some kind of reward, so where are you looking for your reward? It feels right, feels good. I feel a sense of joy just being able to be generous. That's not so much higher than say, how can I get this back with interest in my next lifetime? But there is a, there is a, there is a trade going on there. And don't be embarrassed about the fact that you are gaining something from it. Oh, it's not a universal. So I was reading it more from gratification, joy, arises, as in for the world, right? That's your point earlier. Yeah. I mm-hmm. think your point, mm-hmm. which is um, when there's goodwill mm-hmm. for myself, there's goodwill for all. And right. equally, mm-hmm. when there's generosity to others. And, and you're, you're able to find happiness in a way that's actually helping other people, because there's so many ways of looking for happiness that are harmful to other people. Mm-hmm. This way there's a sense, oh, here's a, here's a way I can be happy and everybody else benefits too. Thank you. Do we need a break? I think five minutes? Five minutes. Okay, we'll break and then we'll come back. What?